podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Nesson Dorma. You're regular, sort of regular again. We're getting a bit more regular with the episodes. Chat about 80s and 90s football. I am your host, Lee Calvert, and joining me for this latest ramble through the hills of half-remembered nostalgia is everyone's favourite Evertonian, Mr. Gary Naylor. Hello, Gary. Yeah, it's a big, strong field, that one, isn't it? <laughs> and making his debut on the Nesson Dorma stage is The Guardian's Nick Miller. Hello, how you doing? Not bad. And obviously, uh, you can get in touch with the podcast on at Pod on Twitter and there's a website and all of that stuff. We're on Acast and we're on Apple Podcasts and put it in Google, you'll find us one way or the other. Coming up in this episode, we're going to have a chat about what I'm calling, and it might be wrong, but what I'm calling Nottingham Forest's in-between years. By that, I mean the years in between the, the end of the European Cup saga, and which most people are aware of, obviously, and likewise the relegation which again most people are aware of, but I'm not sure we're not sure people are that aware of the bit in between, so we're going to talk about that. And we think it's perhaps more interesting than people give it credit for, really. So roughly Nottingham Forest between about nineteen eighty one and nineteen ninety three. And that's why Nick is here. Because as he said before he we came on to record, he went to his first game at five. So you and your family have lived all of this, Nick. It's not just a, a conversation, it's a reliving. Oh god, yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. My my parents were at the my parents uh, the first European Cup final, they had the choice between going to Munich or getting carpets for their house, and you know they, they made the right choice. <laughs> they sound like our kind of people, listeners, I think. Yeah. Um, so then let's get down to business then. So I suppose you can't really start a conversation like this without talking about Brian Clough, because everything changed at Nottingham Forest with the appointment of Brian Clough. Uh, Brian Clough was born in Grove Hill, Middlesbrough in 1935, one of eight surviving children. He had uh, he actually had a ninth sibling, but a sister who died. He was uh, very young. He was a prolific striker, started his career at Billing- Billingham Synthonia, the same club that Gary Pallister started at, in case you wanted to know that, before making the natural journey to Middlesbrough Football Club, where he scored an astonishing 204 goals in 222 league matches. It's important for later that this is where he first met Peter Taylor, who was a goalkeeper at the Borough at the time. He then transferred to Sunderland, where the goals continued. He bagged 63 in 74 games before that fateful day, Boxing Day 1962, when a collision with the Berry goalkeeper, Chris Harker, tore his knee ligaments. He returned two years later, but managed only three games before retiring at the age of 29. It's worth remembering, and actually I think he remembered this, I'd like to remind people about this, that uh, his ratio of 0.916 goals per game remains a record for players who have scored more than 200 goals in the English league. Um, Club's first managerial appointment after that was at Hartley Pools United, as they were known as then, in 1965. That's where he reunited with Peter Taylor in that famous partnership. And also, it's when he first invited the other love of his footballing life into his, into his life, John McGovern. He spent six years at Derby with Taylor after that, and also, and we're going to talk about later, Jimmy Gordon, the coach, who we think we're going to have a, more of a conversation about later on. He won promotion and a title at Derby before being toppled by his own hubris, and then he had a short spell in Brighton, and of course that famous 44 days at Leeds, without Taylor but with Jimmy Gordon, before he was once again toppled by his own hubris. Eventually, 
He found his way to Second Division Forest in January 1975. Taylor rejoined him in July 1976. And the rest, as they say, is history. Promotion in 1977, First Division Champions in 1978, European Cup in 1979, and again in 1980. Before we get into it, it's sometimes easy to forget quite what an achievement that was. Promotion, League Champions, European Cup in three seasons. Yeah, I mean, you'll you, you'll find um, most Forest fans will argue with Leicester fans uh, <laughs> for for years about which is the kind of you know greater miracle. Uh, I'll I'll leave the listeners to decide what, what they think, but you know, just make sure you make the right choice. <laughs> I think I was at the game at Goodison that opened up their first division campaign in. 77 78 because it was a it was a big surprise that the team that had come up from the old second division to the old first division and really got up by their fingertips not much more than that um absolutely played Everton off the park won 3-1 and that was really the time when people started to take notice but of course it was the it was the game at uh, Old Trafford and here's Archie Gemmell all the way up from the back and uh, that that match where I think they won four one or four nil, I think it was. I'm sure you'll remember, Nick. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and that that really sort of put them on the put them on the kind of radar of the casual fan as well as uh, obviously Forest Forest fans. Uh, it's up there with Leicester. Um, I don't know whether it's. I mean, it was such different days, weren't they? The finances were different, pitches were different, everything else was was different. But uh, it's certainly one of the most remarkable um, achievements in British football. Yes, and it, it's easy to forget, isn't it? Because Taylor didn't get there till 76. He was 18 months alone at Forest. And one of the things is that there's loads of moments of careers that might not have been in football history. And that was what was what this kind of mood music around that time, Nick, about people were very happy with Clough in that first 18 months, that he should have done better and possibly he might have got the chop, or was, was that never really being discussed? I don't think he, there was ever really any kind of discussion that he would get the chop. I think that there was always a kind of, as there was throughout Clough's time at Forest, there was always a sort of loose sort of suspicion thing in the background that he might leave himself. Right. Um, it was certainly the first season, no season and a half, Forrest weren't that good. He was just kind of figuring out the team and, you know, figuring out which players he, he could keep. And, mm. you know, he he, he spot, spotted in a few of the players, John Robertson's most obvious example, um, what other people couldn't. But it, took, it did t- take a couple of years to kind of figure all that out. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about Club, the point about him leaving, is that he always seemed to decide he he was he started very publicly flirting with other jobs as his contract negotiation was was coming yeah. back up. Was it like, for example, the Wales international job? where he had a photo of himself throwing his passport in the bin when they wouldn't let him do it yeah. part time and all that kind of stuff. What what's amazing? I'm not. We're not going to. This isn't a Clough episode, although it has to be to a certain extent. But what I find so fascinating about people like Clough is when you go back to where he came from, you know, one of eight from a council house in Middlesbrough, how do you, and we can't answer it, but it's fascinating to, how do you get that unbelievable belief in yourself? And it was there from very early on. There's a story about when he first got called up to England and had a massive go at Billy Wright for not doing enough running. And Billy Wright had like 110 caps at this point. And he, and he sort of never got, well, it's one of the reasons he never got many called up for England. He, he pissed, Billy Wright off the great legend and stuff like that. 
he, I know it's easy, it's a cliche to say he was a one-off and stuff like that, but he seems to have been that way from really young, despite humble beginnings, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's even his self self belief is even more remarkable when you consider he scored all those goals in the second division. I mean, yeah. you know, he, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, later on in in uh, his managerial career, you would occasionally get, you know, he's obviously never shy about bringing that up, but you would occasionally get gobby uh, players would say, "Hey, yeah, but you only scored those goals in the second division," and you know, those those players tend tend not to last very long. <laughs> Gary. Yeah, um, I have a, a little bit of a theory about this, which I apply more generally across kind of all sports in that to get to the, the top in sports, the very top, you need an almost psychotic level of, of self-belief. You need to be able to fool yourself over and over again that despite the evidence that's piled up, you're going to win. And the, yeah, the, true, the, yeah. the very best the very best of them come through in this way and some people seem to have that that almost unstable sense of self-belief um to an even greater extent and clearly it feeds into some of the the problems uh, that clough had later in life and some of the problems that were actually quite evident even at, at that time um but it's no surprise to me that that, that this kind of uh, what I call psychotic self-belief seems to be distributed regardless of where you are in the kind of population or what your education was or your social background, because it seems to be something like instinct or something that you that you draw upon, and you see it in the in the in the very best of successful people in sports, and you sometimes see it in in other fields as well. But Clough does seem to be a one-off in that at the end of that bell curve, he was at the end of the bell curve at the end of the bell curve, if you like, <laughs> true, because yeah. he didn't he didn't just do it once, you know, he did it he did it twice. And the the level of of fooling yourself you need to to go through in order not just to build the one career but the two careers and to keep coming back and to keep at it over and over again. Um, perhaps there's never been anyone quite like him, and that's why sometimes you get the references to to Muhammad Ali and, and Clough. It's not just the larger than life personalities, but it's that that ability to believe in yourself to the extent that you need to in order to overcome what they overcome. Very different issues, but nevertheless overcome not just once but twice. Yeah, amazing stuff. And there is something, an entire other discussion probably about one of the, probably the worst things you can be as a top professional sportsman is diffident, you know, because you're kind of screwed, aren't you? Because you have to believe in yourself all the time. And your point about the bell curve, then you get the end of the bell curve, the end of the British Alley well, and, and Clough. You can't be a balanced personality. You can't be someone who sees the world in the shades of grey that we all know it to be. Because if you see the world in the shades of grey, you're the kind of person who knows that you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, you're going to have off days and so on and so forth. And that's the way life is. We all know that to be objectively true. But to get to the top in sport, you have to be subjectively you have to abandon that and say the world is not constructed in that way. The world is constructed to be bent to my will and my will will bend it. And um, it's, it's no wonder that, that the personalities tend to be unhinged sooner or later. So speaking of bending the world to your will, certainly bending the European Cup to their will, uh, they won it in 79, they won it in 1980. We're not doing a, an episode about the European, mainly because... There's lots of stuff out there to talk about that. There's documentaries, there's books, there's 
there's everything, there's YouTube, there's anywhere to find this stuff. So let's, we're going to move on after 1980. Um, I suppose it's worth reflecting before we start about what team won that European Cup in 1980. And then I suppose what happened to it immediately afterwards, because if we pause and look at the team now that won in, in, at the Bernabeu in 1980 against Hamburg, um, you had Shilton in goal, Viv Anderson right back, Frank Gray left back, Larry Lloyd and Ken Burns. Were they, were, did they play a sort of four-five-one or a four-three-three in this game, Nick? Is that is that is that is that the most sensible way of putting it? Oh, in the final, it was it was definitely four-five-one. It was an absolute dog of a final. If you if you ever, <laughs> if you yeah, ever it was. if you ever kind of. Um, if you ever have the urge to go back and watch it, because I think it, I think the whole thing's on YouTube somewhere or, or something, uh, don't please don't. It's a, <laughs> it, but Forrest scored. Uh, John Robertson scored fairly early on. It's about twenty minutes out, twenty minutes gone, I think. Um, and then basically sort of dug in for the, for the rest of the game. Cuff obviously was always very quite pious about playing good football, but they didn't play good football in that game. Um, so- yeah, so, so, so yeah, so there was a back four, Anderson, Frank Gray, left-back, Larry Lloyd, Ken Burns, and then you had this midfield five, which is Robertson, Gary Mills, John McGovern, Ian Bowyer, and Martin O'Neill, and then Gary Bertles plowing, plowing a furrow up front alone. Now, one of the things that's often said about this is, is, is was this team broken up too early? And was it broken up too early, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I think that most people, and, and Clough himself kind of, admitted this a few years later that they did break it up too early um there are kind of extenuating circumstances for a lot of them but you know by 1982 83 basically that whole team had had been had gone had disbanded uh they sold bowyer not i'm not really sure why they sold William bowyer to sunderland Gary Burtles went to united a couple of years later mm. like tony woodcock had already gone to germany mm. Um, Trevor Francis fell out with uh, Trevor, Trevor Francis was injured for that 1980 final but he had a falling out uh, with Clough a year or two later and um, was sold to Manchester City um, Shilton went quite soonish as well didn't he he went sh- yeah Shilton or something he went to yeah. Southampton did he mm. yeah, I haven't looked that up but yeah um, it, and it was all kind of tied in or the, the the sort of latter explanation was tied in with the idea that um peter taylor who'd always been the man who kind of spotted the players and um then clough would sort of knock him into shape he by sort of 1981 82 he admitted himself he thought he'd kind of shot it he thought he you know he couldn't he'd lost his eye his eye had gone for a player effectively yeah yeah basically and there were kind of a a series of of quite expensive mistakes which i think we'll talk about in a a little bit um and rather than kind of buying you know having an eye for a kind of um for a you know unappreciated player polishing a rough diamond they had this odd spell kind of 80 81 where they'd sign these old kind of players who had nowhere else to go like first one there's european super cup in 1980 before the uh, european cup final actually uh with stan bowles and charlie george in the team which you know the, the <laughs> i don't yeah how how that happened i've never i've never quite got stan bowles hardly played any games at all did he it was a real strange old signing wasn't it no, he, he arrived, played a few games, just happened to be around the time of the Super Cup, yeah. and then 
um, and then was kind of quite briskly moved on. Gary? Well, it's it's an interesting point because a decade later, the same charge of breaking a team up too early is, was levelled at Everton from their mid-80s double championship side of 85-87. And yet you look at two perhaps of the most successful dynasties in, in British football, and by that I'm talking about the kind of Shankly-Paisley years at Liverpool and the uh, Alex Ferguson uh, era at Manchester United, and their philosophy was very much that you sell a player at the at the top of their game because they're not going to get any better. Um, and that you teams ossify due to not being broken up early, players sort of playing on for that last contract and losing a yard of pace and all of this kind of thing. Of course, you know, history is written by the winners, and so if you if you replace kind of Ray Kennedy as Liverpool did, I think, with Graham Souness. Well, of course, you know, that's a, <laughs> an upgrade on a on a very, very good player with a great player. Um, Keegan becomes Dalgleish and so on. Um, we all know the sides that, that Manchester United uh, created and Alex Ferguson created to win two European Cups uh, or Champions Leagues. Uh, and, and so I, I, can, I kind of understand why fans of a team, when it goes on the slide, think that, you know, that side was broken up too early. But I tend to think that, that the dynasties and the, the clubs and the managers that survived longest, they're actually... They, they actually probably sell a player a year. They'd rather sell a player too, a year too early than a year too late. Yeah, and I suppose um, the thing it all is, depends who, who are you going to bring in is the Yeah, is the and you question. never know the answer is it was right or not, do you? Because once you've twisted, no, you, you never know what would have happened. What would happen. There's also, wasn't, wasn't there something levelled at this time, and I might be in the wrong period, but correct me if I'm wrong, isn't this, wasn't the defence always that I had a new stand to pay for? Yeah, that, so that was being built around the time of the um uh, they won the second european cup yeah and it became uh, the, the, the board basically could have gambled on um this you know getting to the last stages of the european cup being the kind of new normal for forest so they built this enormous the stand, peter ridsdale still... gambit yeah <laughs> yeah we didn't didn't quite go for the kind of you know um ex uh, flamboyantly expensive fish and signing Seth Johnson, but it very much in that kind of oeuvre. But yeah, this this enormous stand which is still there and it's called the, it's actually called the Brian Clough stand now. Um he it, the, the the kind of financial impact of that didn't really kind of kick in for another couple of years. Right. Um and the club's financial problems in the early eighties certainly had plenty to do with that and also to do with the, the you know expensive quite bad players that they signed um they were also if we could get into some kind of quite tedious detail i think forest were, there was a there was a um uh, a rule change a few years after that i think pre- previously teams had to give a certain amount of um the away the, the, the gate to away teams hmm. which was changed and that kind of financially impacted on a relatively uh small club like forest Oh, okay. um, I didn't know that. That sounds like a kind of yeah. tedious detail I'd like to know. Maybe we'll come oh, yeah, back yeah, to yeah. that, let, Gary. Go. Let, let, let's let's not get bogged down <laughs> too much into that. But you know, <laughs> if if you want to do some reading, I'm sure, I'm sure it's out there. But yeah, the um, they they kind of gambled on um, these two European Cups establishing Forest as a real power, and to have a real power, they they had to 
or as they saw it, they had to build this new mm. modern stand. Um, and attendances just kind of they they, they, they for, for for quite a few years they just couldn't fill it, and they didn't they didn't actually pay for the thing for about another ten years. Wow. Uh, so. So there's yeah. something to that then that they had to do try and make ends meet with that. Sorry, Gary, go on. Well, it's just one of the legacies of that. It's one of my favourite sites in the whole of uh, of England, and you know I'm not exaggerating when I when I say that, in that. You can go up to the the castle. Is it up on the hill in Nottingham, Nick? Mm. There's a castle there, yeah. and you can you can look down, and you've got Trent Bridge Cricket Ground, beautiful. You've got uh, the City Ground, Forest of the Brian Clough Stand, and you can clearly see the Brian Clough Stand written at the top of the stand. And then you've got Meadow Lane, and you can see all three of these sports grounds in what is really a provincial city. It's not a it's not a big city. It doesn't have a big city feel the way Glasgow or even Edinburgh uh, does. And yet there are three venues within, uh, you know, at least as close as, as Everton and Liverpool's ground. And it's just a, a tremendously uplifting sight for, uh, for an Englishman like me to think <laughs> that, that a provincial city had the confidence to deliver three venues that... S- that you can see in such a small space. It's just fantastic. I've never really wanted is. to have Jerusalem teed up as a bed underneath <laughs> more in my life. But unfortunately, <laughs> fingers can't work quickly enough. But yeah, it's a... On a, on a, on a less glorious part of, of England's history, I just want to ask you this, uh, Nick, because um, I was 21 or so at the time and it somewhat passed me by. But what, what effect did the miners' strike have on on it? Because it was an extremely bitter time, and of course the Nottingham uh, Nottinghamshire miners um, it had no effect. They were all still stuff. in work. I think they, <laughs> I think they, but it was it was a kind of social social schism, wasn't it? It was a kind of collective nervous breakdown in the coal fields that obviously stretched from Nottinghamshire up towards uh, Yorkshire and beyond. But did it have any effect? Because that was 84, 85, wasn't it? To be honest, it's a little, a little bit before my time, so I don't really know what the, the, the kind of effect at that time was. But what I can tell you is whenever Forest play uh, a team from Yorkshire, you can set your watch about five minutes in, there'll be some spotty 19-year-old who starts shouting, scabs, scabs, scabs. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's good to see. I, that I come uh, from a family of Lancashire coal miners and Nottingham was virtually a swear word in our house for, for yeah, quite I a think, number of years. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, in some ways you have to kind of admire the, the, the length of the, the grudge that is, that is held. Um, yeah, it's amazing, yeah. yeah. It'll be there in 100 years' time. Yeah, so, it really will. Yeah, so, uh, well, apparently we, I'm from Lee in Lancashire and uh, we hate Wigan traditionally. Uh, my granddad died last year and... Um, my granddad says about Wiganers, bloody Wiganers, they'll work for a pissing orange. And that's all to do with them going back to work before Lee Miners did in 1932 or something. I can't remember, but it never goes away. But yeah, we definitely don't want to go too far down that track. So the team did break up to early and early option. There was the stand to it and all that kind of stuff. So the question mark then becomes, obviously, you mentioned, Nick, that Peter Taylor said... By 81-82, he believed I can't spot a player anymore. So he, he retired in 82, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, I think part of his... Um, he retired in 82, but then unretired uh, yeah, shortly well, after. Yeah, that's another story. Which is another story. Um, 
But I, I, part, partly his retirement was that he thought, you know, his eyes had gone and he couldn't spot a player anymore. And partly, I think it was just because he was he was sick of Clough because they kind of, they, they, they were, um, they obviously had this incredibly close personal and professional relationship. But they did, they did and said some pretty, you know, horrible things to each other for, all throughout the kind of successful years as well. And after, what well, you know, better part of, 20 years working together I think it had just kind of <clears throat> ground Taylor down by that point and he was he just had enough and you know six months away from club surprise surprise he was a little bit more reju- rejuvenated so that's that's why he took uh, yeah. took over at Derby and he, he did um, I mean it's easy to forget isn't it I suppose in Taylor's mind he will be he, well if it was me I'd be thinking you lost me my job at Derby yeah, <laughs> and I didn't, you know, I wasn't interested in your nonsense and I ended up losing losing my job I suppose that stuff doesn't go away does it Gary well, I recall one of the more remarkable interviews um, I heard on the radio, and it was, it was either, when, it, it may have been when Clough died, it was either that or when he, he left uh, Forrest, and it was the receptionist who'd been on the desk at Forrest for all the time that Clough was there. And it started out like one of these sort of ordinary interviews you, you get with with what's would have been referred to in the, in the past as a respectable working class. You know, she had her best voice on and, um, <laughs> you know, she was, she was talking about a little like my mother when she used to answer the phone. Yeah, my mother's got cinema, a phone voice, yeah. Which is very different to the, the voice she used the rest of the time. And, but then it sort of transformed and she started getting emotional in a way that, that people who grew up in the, in the 50s don't get emotional that you know we're used to the outpouring of of tears and everything else if someone on the x factor sort of breaks a fingernail or something like that but but it but for those people it was it was unusual and she was she was almost in tears and the only the only word i could describe uh, i could use to describe what she was talking about with clough is that she loved him she really loved him in a in a kind of platonic sense um and she was she was talking about him like he was a, a father, a, a son, a lover. All of these things combined, and it seems kind of mad to to say that, but clearly he he inspired that kind of of devotion in people. And it's only you know the narrowest margin with that kind of devotion to turn it over into into bitterness and and if not quite hatred, then certainly. A, a, a very uh, strong antipathy and I think and I may be wrong in this but I, I think that Taylor kept his distance outside work they worked very closely together but I don't think they socialised away I mean Brian Clough went to the cricket I don't think Peter Taylor ever went to the cricket they were big mates and they were and, in Middlesbrough together weren't they, 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 they yeah, those are the things they were always in corners chatting away when they were at Middlesbrough together but I think them. it was always the professional side it was always about football I, yeah, yeah I've got a feeling I'm not absolutely certain but I've got a feeling that sort of neither went to each other's weddings or their sons and daughters something like that and maybe that was that was Taylor's way of being able to maintain the right level of distance you, you need from, from a kind of uh, black hole like Clough's personality being so enormous that he sucked everyone into his orbit. And then, and then once you were on the in, inside, you couldn't get out of it. But to have lasted that long with that bigger personality is in itself remarkable. But it, it almost comes as no surprise to me that, uh, that the breakup was coming sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure about the, the the wedding thing. I think they, they they were relatively close for a lot of the time off the pitch. I think that um, 
Nigel and Simon and Elizabeth, the, the Brian's kids, you know, referred to Uncle Peter. So I don't know. Yeah, you know, maybe. Uh, not maybe sure. So. Not, but I mean, I think it. I think what became clear later on in Cuff's career was that what a kind of extraordinary balancing act he'd done in the successful years, because he kind of is we'll talk about this later on i'm sure but the popular thing is to say that the drink kind of destroyed his career but it was just it was just his mood swings his kind of yeah. increasingly volatile personality he was capable of the most extraordinary kindness as i'm sure that receptionist that you were yeah. talking about so you'd hear all the kind of stories about yeah. you know bill bills bills you know magically being paid giving but 50 quid was, to kids in the car park who'd save yeah, that, money yeah. for their for their seat for their cup, cup tie ticket and stuff exactly that kind of thing and uh, and then he was just capable of the most uh, you know inexplicable cruelty as well he'd kind of regularly kick people off the team coach if they'd done something to annoy him and you know left to make their own way home so uh the Duncan Hamilton just, book, provided you don't kiss me, is yeah. a really good exploration of that sort of cruelty mood yeah. swings and how he was. Because you often think, don't you? Because they're all grown men, aren't they? And, and even Duncan Hamilton, who's a journalist, you know, and he said how terrifying it was to be in an enclosed space, like with like a coach with him. When he lost it, it was after some shit cup tie. He turned on and said, he came on, and it sounds funny, but he says it wasn't funny at all. He came on and said, you lot don't fucking deserve lights after that. So you're all travelling on with the dark, and you won't fucking speak to each other. So he insisted all the lights went out, and they all sat in silence like for the longest journey you can imagine, enclosed in this case. And and I remember reading it thinking, but these were all like grown men, especially, but Hamilton said such was the force of the man. Yeah. But it was terrifying to be around, and you did as he told you, you know. And exhausting as well. You know, yeah, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the thing is, that's why a lot of people say, how can you be bullied if you're an adult? Well, you can be. Oh, you, you know, can There's a very be. clear psychology to it, you know. Again, another episode, perhaps. But um, <laughs> So, yeah, so that point, Taylor retired. Maybe I don't, he had a gut full of cloth, but he, or his version was he couldn't pick players. But certainly with some of the players being signed, well, was it, were they signed by him just before he left or, or afterwards where there were a lot of these kind of big money errors? Yeah, a few of them. Like Ian Wallace was one paid a lot of money for him in about 1981. Who actually wasn't. I mean, if you kind of look at his record, it wasn't that bad. It was just because he wasn't as good as he was at Coventry. I think it was that he he signed yeah, from. Um, Asa Hartford was a couple of years earlier, but signed him for half a million quid when a half a million quid was a lot of money, and then sold him. I think sold him back to Manchester City for, uh, very quickly after that. Um, Peter Ward cost a lot of money. Striker from Brighton, he wasn't any good either. Um, well, he and, was injured. He was yeah. he was good, but he was injured so much. And then, uh, then there was Justin Fashioner, who they you know, they paid um, paid a million pounds for. Um, and mm. it, 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 the 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 kind of from reading things about it, Justin Fashioner seems to have been the ultimate version of that thing where. Managers sign players who have played well against their team a few times. Fashionu had a few brilliant games against Forest, and then he scored that incredible volley against Liverpool or something that won the won the goal of the season. And Forest promptly paid a million quid for him, and he was you know he was nineteen and um, a bit quite an erratic character. And uh, you know, well uh, again, I think we'll talk about close yeah. treatment of Justin Fashionu. Well, later we can on. do that now actually because it was around about yeah. this time, wasn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, th- th- these are kind of the, the one of the two big kind of strikes against Clough. We talked about his kind of his capacity for being incredibly cruel, and it's always a little bit difficult to 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 judge because Fashioner clearly was did, did have problems, and he was kind of he was very erratic. He would just kind of occasionally refuse to play in games, and you know, but Clough sort of got wind that he was gay quite soon after he signed and Clough says in I always forget which autobiography it was either the first or the second he always says that um, it had nothing to do with the fact that he was gay that you know know, he wasn't wasn't keen on his personality but he does refer to him as the puff throughout the book which is and then there's this uh, uh, there's this other story that Clough kind of quite proudly tells in in the book, where um, he had heard that Fashion was going to the to the gay bars in um, in Nottingham, and in the middle of training once he claimed he said to him, uh, kind of stood him up in front of the, the all the all the players and said, you know, Justin, if you wanted to buy a you know a pork chop, where would you go? And Fashion was kind of slightly confused as a well, butchers, I suppose. And, and then Clough says, "Well, if you wanted to buy a loaf of bread, where would you go?" And Fashion, who's still not not, quite, not knowing quite what was going on, said, uh, "A baker's." And so Clough said, "Well, why do you keep going to those puff bars then?" Um, and this was kind of told quite proudly as a sort of Clough's yes. Clough saying, "I figured him out, you know, I, 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 I you know, uh, yeah. I wheedled out his." his abnormalities. They'll have to get up um, early in the morning than that to yeah. catch me out sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, but this is, the the, 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 the trouble is, that obviously Clough is very good at self-mythologising and um, saying these things uh, to, you know, painting the version of history that he yes. wants to paint. Fashioner actually said that he never, he never actually said that, but Clough felt the need to put it in his autobiography Years later, yeah, kind of. To what end? What are you trying to demonstrate about yourself? No, here, Brian? Yeah. exactly. It yeah. was clear that he, you know, Fashionu was a, a tricky character, but Clough just treated him abominably. Yes, sorry, Gary. Well, he had a, a phrase, didn't he, Clough? One of his catchphrases, and a bit like cliches, um, the catchphrases that people use often have an element of truth or perhaps more than an element of truth and you know Clough used to say it's all about good habits didn't he over and over again he would say it's all about good habits and when they asked him and other people said what was the secret of his uh, success he would say that he made it very very clear to players what they were required to do and he made it very very simple and very very clear there's that story about him saying give it to the genius and pointing to the the fat Scottish bloke puffing on a woodbine saying give it to John Robertson uh, there and you know, maybe someone like Fashionu, who at that time was unconventional, bizarrely in 2018 in football would still probably be seen as unconventional, even mm. though it wouldn't be in almost any other walk of life. Maybe Clough just didn't like those habits that he, he had. And then once he has that, and once he sees that, and Fashionu was always going to be an inconsistent player. He was always he was a mercurial player when he was at Norwich, as you've said. He scored extraordinary goals and other games he went in and out of. It it, it then gave him something to to rationalise that and perhaps rationalise his inverted commas mistake in spending a million pounds on on the player. So, um, in some ways, in some ways, it could be it could be all of that without 
fashioning being gay, but but being gay, it just gave him a stick yes. that 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 Clough could mm-hmm. beat him with. But moreover, he could he could do that self belief thing in justifying to himself that he'd spent an enormous amount of money on on someone who didn't have the good habits he was looking for and probably never would either on the field or off the field in. Clough's sort of worldview. Mentioning uh, Robertson there reminds me of one of my favourite Clough quotes ever. Is it before the 1980 final, the inside-out quote? When he's, it's, the, yeah, it's Manny Coutts he's talking about. Yeah, that's right. He, the, he said, we've got right a little back. fat man on the wing who's going to turn him inside <laughs> out. And then he yeah. pauses and goes, inside out. <laughs> it's then, just, he, uh, then he stares directly down the camera. Like he he's does, staring it's his just... You know, for all of his, you know, the tempestuousness and the awfulness and, and stuff, stuff like that, you just can't. And that point, yeah. that's why people loved it. I wasn't a Forest fan. Um, I, I was at Union Middlesbrough, so I've got, I've got some, I love, I've got some sympathy with where he came from and some experience of where he came from. But I kind of love him. He was never a manager of England. He never managed any teams I managed any or I support. Nothing like that. But he's he's hard in many ways not to love, even with all all the flaws. Yeah. An interesting point. Uh, Sorry, Gary. Yeah, go. so I was going to say that, that, like many people who made the world a, a brighter place, and he did, you know, when he, those interviews and just the green jumper, the world was a brighter place, even for someone like me, myself, who's not a Forest fan. Um, he could make it a darker place for, for plenty as well. But I will say about John Robertson, I, I wrote a piece a very long time ago in my very early days of writing online that John Robertson was my favourite uh, player, certainly my favourite player who was not an Everton player. Just just fantastic to watch, just a, a, a genius. How did he get that level of performance out of, out of that physique and out of that way of life? There was absolutely nobody, including Kenny Dalgleish, who may have been the uh, second fastest over one yard that I've ever seen. He could make a yard out in a telephone box. Uh, what a player he was. The situation then is that Taylor's gone. We talked about Clough there, replacing the players. The team got broken up a bit, and I suppose bringing all these new players together, whether they were, whether, you know, some of them slightly substandard, as you were saying, Nick, faced a bit more of an obstacle as well because of the same time that Taylor departed. So did Jimmy Gordon. Now people often sort of again mythologise the Clough Taylor partnership, and, and it's certainly what what people do now. There's a lot said about Clough Taylor, but there's not a lot said about Clough Taylor Gordon or Clough Jimmy Gordon, is there? So for those who might not be absolutely familiar, I'm sure there'll be some people who are out there, but Nick, who was Jimmy Gordon? Yeah, J- Jimmy Gordon was a he was a trainer at, um, I think he was out in Middlesbrough with when Clough and Taylor were players. He couldn't stand him um, there either, could he? No, they could, the, the, the three of them couldn't stand, couldn't stand each other. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was... Um, he was a very kind of old school sort of military dress up smart work hard kind of bloke and Clough and Taylor kind of quite quickly recognised that this is the sort of bloke that they needed um, so I think I think, they, I think he, they brought him in when they were at Derby and he from there he went uh, and then when, when they left Derby obviously famously Peter Taylor didn't go with Clough to um, but uh, didn't go with Clough to Leeds, but Gordon went because he knew basically because he knew that Clough was making a mistake and he needed someone with him to kind of you know to yeah. uh, help out basically. Um, and, and this uh, even at this point, he, he <laughs> Gordon didn't particularly like Clough, but he kind of felt this 
loyalty to him um, that he went to help out. And then uh, yeah, he's made such a balls up here. I need to save him from himself, even though yeah, of course that wasn't possible at Leeds. But yeah, to... and Clough often talks about his payoff from Leeds, kind of setting him up for life, basically. But Gordon was binned off from Leeds with absolutely nothing. I think it was after that that he went on the dole for a bit and he then worked in the Rolls-Royce factory. And then when, obviously, when Clough went went to Forest, he, he joined up then. Um, and he was the kind of... Um, was this, I, I, don't, I don't want to be so pretentious to quote myself. But, but, uh, <laughs> no, absolutely. I wrote, you wrote the piece on <laughs> wrote, it, so please do quote yeah, it, yeah. I wrote a piece for The Guardian a few years ago about, um, about Jimmy Gordon. Um, the famous quote from... Clough about him and Peter Taylor was that um, Clough said, I'm the shop front and uh, Taylor's the goods in the back. And my kind of line about this was that Gordon was the sort of the masonry of the store. He was the kind of the, the walls and the um, the window frames that kind of kept everything together. Yeah, he was seen as a kind of go between, wasn't he? You could smooth yeah. off and get the players ready for the mood Clough was in or help them yeah, to deal yeah. with it a bit better. He kind of, you could say he was an, an enabler on some level, but you know, it, it worked. Darren? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I'm always reminded when one talks of these characters, and they're, they're often around these kind of third wheels and things, of uh, Derek Smalls in Spinal Tap talking about uh, Davidson Tubbins being the, the ice and Nigel Tufnell being the fire. And uh, he says, I'm, I'm sort of the lukewarm water <laughs> in the middle. And, but you, you often get these these figures in football and, and elsewhere who are, who are in the shadows and yet... Uh, there, the the oil and the machinery, the cogs would just grind to a halt. Too much heat, not enough oil. If they were if they were not there doing their their job, and again, it's that it's that strange alchemy. I don't. In some ways, it's got nothing to do with sport. Maybe it has something to do with men or masculinity, but it's you, you almost have to have someone who's in the background of the story, who are a catalyst. And when they're there, the reactions are, hmm. are under control. And when they're not there, the reactions either don't happen or they, they blow up uh, into a kind of volcanic mess straight away. So it's no surprise that the, these figures are, are there um, in clubs and, and, follow, and follow these bigger personalities around, always in the shadows. The, like um, Zalik. The... Um... You mentioned about him being a quite uncompromising player, coach. Apparently, he was an absolute super hard man as a as a, as a player. I played wing half, and Bill Shank. This is from your piece, actually, Nick. But Bill Shankly said of him, and you've got to imagine the Shankly voice, which I can't do. He said, uh, "If you had to play against Jimmy every week, you wouldn't sleep at night." <laughs> which is basically his job was just to. And I like this, and and this part about what he did, you know. So he had all these new players. Taylor gone. He was trying to integrate these new players, which some of them perhaps weren't right. He was having to do it on his own. Taylor had gone. There was no Jimmy Gordon to be that kind of go-between. I think had, had Archie Gemmell come back at this point as a coach or was near to coming back? No, that, well, that, that, was, that wasn't until a few years later. All right, okay. So so he, he was very much this whole kind of team had broken up and he's having to integrate these new players. Uh, John McGovern said about Jimmy Gordon, again from Nick's excellent piece, uh, Jimmy Gordon would come into training on a January... They said about how he'd keep everybody's spirits up, you know. Jimmy Gordon would come into training on a January morning, says McGovern, about three degrees below freezing. He'd have a tracksuit top on, a pair of shorts, no tracky bottoms, and he'd take a big deep breath of fresh air and say, ah, it's a good to be alive day, and then he'd run the balls off you. 
<laughs> he said that was Jimmy. He made you appreciate the job that you were lucky enough to do, sort of thing. And uh, yeah, so again, yeah, it's probably deserves a few more notices than he he gets. And I'm sure Forest fans are well aware of it. But um, in the wider football world, now I suppose this leads us into what you might call what has been referred to as the wilderness years for Forest between sort of eighty three and the late 80s, 1990 sort of period. Is that fair enough, Nick? Um, sort of, yeah. I mean, they, they, it's kind of viewed as that, but um, 1983-84 was a pretty good season. I mean... Well, it's the thing, the... If, you look, if you look at the... Um, here's the, the positions that Forrest finished in from 1983 up to getting relegated. Fifth, third, ninth, eighth, eighth, Third, third, ninth, eighth, eighth, and then twenty second. Obviously, yeah. Uh, but in a way that, well, we'll come on to this later on. But there's nothing about the league positions which suggested the twenty second was coming. No. Um, and actually, people talk about this being a wilderness years, which is probably an unfair title. If you were to say to somebody, you know, a, 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 if you were to say to a, cl- a club of sort of forest sides, now, hey, look, I'm going to give you a result. I'm going to give you your league positions for the next. Well, actually, go on, Gary. You're an Everton fan, right? If I would say to you now about Everton, here's your league positions for the next nine years. Fifth, third, ninth, eighth, eighth, third, third, ninth, eighth, eighth. You wouldn't be too unhappy with that, would you? Well, I, I wouldn't, but there would be Everton fans who who would be. And the reason for that is that there isn't progress. Is that yeah, I suppose. If, you're, if you're standing still, you're not getting anywhere. And... I mean, I felt this for a lot of Arsene Wenger's uh, years at, at Arsenal. The team were not improving; they were not uh, they were they were not getting better either on the field or in their in their league positions. And I think that that annoys fans. You can almost take a kind of yo-yo more than you can take a a kind of level of competence. Um, competence is a very bad word in sport because it's not exciting and. I would welcome a level of competence at Oldham Athletic, like a warm blanket wrapped around yeah. myself. I think, and I think people, and I think people do, and they do for a, two or three years. Yeah, perhaps. But when it runs on that long, you're thinking, well, what are what are we doing here? What, why are we why are we we doing this? As it happens, you know, I I would take that from Everton, but I, I'm 55. Whether I would have done when I was 25 or not. I don't know because I would want to see it. Uh, I would want to see it improving. But you know, the the, the it's almost a contractual obligation to raise the phrase, be careful what you wish for at such <laughs> points in discussion as this, because you do have to be careful what you, what you wish for. Um, but, you know, I remember when Forrest did have that precipitous fall and somehow as an outsider looking in, even though it was on the back of that consistency, it wasn't a surprise. There was a kind of end of days feel to it. You know, Clough had that terrible blotchy face that he had and all of that. And, and then they they then became the, the the team after that, which established themselves. But it always felt a little precarious because the, the amount of money that was in the game just for being in the Premier League at that point wasn't enough. Um, and you know, if if you were a medium size or smallish to medium size club like like Forest, where what were the attendances at the City Ground? About twenty eight thousand, something like that. Twenty five. Um, well, when, when when do you mean? I mean, it was in the kind of. 80s and, and so on it was it was less than that it yeah was kind of, you know, 20 early 20s something like that so there isn't much room to get there were no transfer windows then but there wasn't much room to sign three or four duds in a row 
Because if you mm. did, your squad was so thin that, that you, you were then in, in trouble. So in some ways, it wasn't a, a, a surprise. And I think that's the danger. I think if you, if you, if you bump along 8-9, 8-9, 8-9, then 20 seconds always a possibility, I think. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, sorry, Nick, you were going to start talking because obviously there had been all this yeah, change. Sorry. And, and uh, no, it's a good point. Just to, I just want to make sure we don't lose what we're talking about. Um, we've said Taylor gone, Gordon's gone, new players coming in, 83-84. Should have been, I suppose, a, a difficult, I don't know, difficult third album of a season, shouldn't it? But mm. it seemed to go, it, it went better, didn't it? Because it's third in the league, and then, of course, the famous UEFA semi-final. Yeah, I mean, it, sh- it obviously should have should have gone even uh, even better than it actually did. Um, the uh, Andal- my uh, I'm going to have to talk about Andalex because uh, my my old man would never forgive me. He was um, <laughs> 1984. He had a you know a young uh, a, a new baby son and a uh, lot of responsibility. And his dad told him off for doing the incredibly dangerous thing at that point and going to an away game in Europe with an English football team. Um, but he has thoroughly justified it for the in the intervening 34 years by still holding a grudge against Anderlecht. <laughs> and I don't know, I, 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 does everyone know? I think it's worth explaining for everybody. Not everybody listens will know, so uh, sure, plenty will, but yeah. What happened yeah. in Anderlecht in 1984? Yeah, so the short version is the Over Cup semi-final 1984. Forrest won the first leg at the City Ground 2-0. Um, went to uh, to Belgium to play the, the second leg. And the short version is that uh, the Andalect chairman at the time was a man called Constant Vandenstock, who's... Uh, it sounds exactly like a Bond villain, so he's the perfect he, role in this. He absolutely yeah. does. And then the, the, Ander, the Andalect stadium is uh, still named after him, but that's, that's fine. They can, they can do what they want. Uh, he, um, he bribed the referee with... I think it, I, 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 you read kind of different amounts about, of money about what it was, but it was kind of something in the region of about 20 grand... Um, in you know in sterling um and yeah it was 1.2 uh, million belgian francs which i thought was a really specific number yeah <laughs> they kind of went, all right i'll do it but i want 1.2 million belgian francs like i've just been waiting i've had this number ready for somebody to ask me you know it's that kind of sort of and thing it was he was just, he was spanish as well so why where he picked why he asked for his money in Belgium, who can say? <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, he he gave Anderlecht a penalty when all, all the all the kind of uh, reports from the time say that you know the the, the guy who j- just fell over two yards away from from anyone, and then um, Anderlecht Anderlecht were winning three 0 Forrest scored a perfectly good goal. Paul Hart, uh, was there? Paul Hart, yeah. I think he only scored one goal. goal the whole time he was there. That must have been doubly pretty, gutting for him. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. He kind of went up for a header in the air. He didn't touch anyone. He went in and then he was kind of mysteriously disallowed. At the time... Did he turn to Ian Bow, you say? Were you offside? And Ian Bow, was like, yeah. no. What? I've got no idea what's <laughs> no. going on. No. And there's something um, about that point about good habits. There's something about Clough obviously said, you never have a goal at referees. Yeah. yeah. And there is yeah. something about nobody quite noticed how disgraceful it was because had it been maybe any other club, they'd have been well, around the referee going absolutely crazy and it didn't really happen because it, cause it yeah. was Forrest. Maybe it's partly because of that, but also um, partly because uh, all the if you read, there's a very good piece about it written by Danny Taylor in The Guardian 
um, where he interviewed a couple of the players, and they said that at the end of the game, Clough wasn't angry. He just he was just very quiet, very unusual for him, very quiet, just kind of sat there in the dressing room with his head down, staring at the floor, because he knew he, he knew he'd been he'd been done, and in his mind, he'd been done again because it, there was a um, Derby a Juventus, Cup. wasn't it back in Derby Juventus, yeah. yeah. I don't um, talk and, to cheating bastards. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, it, was, it was Brian Glanville he said to that too, wasn't yeah, it? He, right, he told yeah. them to... Um, and, yeah, it, it, it eventually emerged. This for, for a long time, it was kind of almost thought of as a conspiracy theory that, you know, you know, Forrest were knocked out and they're just blaming it on the, a referee being bent. But um, it, did, it, it was revealed later on, um, by which time... Both the, the referee died in a car crash in the late eighties. Yeah, he was um, very young. He's in his forties, I think. Yeah, yeah. and um, and Stock died um, so ninety eight, ninety seven, something like that. Um, and he kind of emerged through some. Is one of these? So they tried to blackmail where, the club, didn't they, or something? Yeah, and it, it, the, the, there were there was recordings discovered where of the. Um, of the the referee being you know spoken to by an intermediary and accepting the 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 money, um, and the lakes were, it, UEFA initially said well it happened ages ago we can't do anything about it but they eventually did ban them from Europe for, I think for a year. Um, yeah, the, yeah play, the players tried to take it through court in Belgium, but I think the quote was that it just got like bogged down in the yeah. Belgian legal system and there was nowhere else yeah, to go was, with it. I'm not sure what charge you'd bring really, but. I don't know, fraud and looking for compo or something. I've got no idea. Yeah, yeah, but um, it's always kind of it's it's always a sort of um, black cloud, I suppose, over over, over that spell. And then I, you know, obviously should have Forrest played uh, would have played Tottenham in the final that year. I think Forrest finished above them in the league. Who knows? Obviously, who knows, yeah, what, who knows. What, 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 whether they would have won it? But um, it, it, you know, would have been the only medal that a lot of those players won um, because of the sort of the churn of the team in that in that four years um, and yeah. then then for the, the, for the for the for the next few years it was a little bit wilderness the, the, the kind of the league positions were fine until they started winning trophies again in the late 80s so yeah you got so again you have these sort of middling finishes Gary as you talked about but you had this very strange run of never being away from Wembley because of course they brought in the league had brought it with the European brand had brought in the full members cup, which then became the was it the Zenith Data Systems Cup? Was that what that is? It was the Simod Cup Simod initially, cup, and yeah. then and then the Zenith Data Systems Cup, yeah. And Forrest won it twice, eighty nine, ninety two, is that right? Uh yeah, yeah. Beat Everton, uh sorry, Gary, and um <laughs> Southampton in ninety two. They were always quite good finals, the full members cup when you look at them. There was some few, there was a few humdingers in there actually. Well, that, the Forest Everton one was four three, I think, and uh, the Southampton like, one was three two. That was the extra charm yeah. as well. Um, and of course, I always watch- see. I always remember them because Tony Cotty always seemed to score a hat trick for Everton. Yeah. You look at his goals; he scored to like one hundred and twenty goals for Everton. And how did he get that many goals? And you realise <laughs> about half of them were in various manifestations of the full members' cup. Um, yeah, and of course the League Cup, you beat Oldham in 1990, which is it sticks long in in my memory. Nigel Nigel Jemson's goal. Yeah, um, and you won the League Cup the year before as well. So was it yeah, two years on the back? Luton three one um, in the. Oh the yeah, because Luton won it in eighty eight, of course, hadn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, what had brought about that kind of success? Then was it was was the was the team finally coming together and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean the the, the kind of three. 
big players throughout that team were um, Nigel Clough, Des Walker and Stuart Pearce, who'd all kind of come through broadly the same time, about kind of 1985, 86. Um, and they were the kind of nucleus of this team um, that was sort of supplemented by players like Neil Webb and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, Gary Parker was very good for a few years. Steve Hodge was was very good uh, for a few years. Kind of went went to Tottenham, I think, and then came back. Um, so he, he kind of built this quite young, promising team. And the, the kind of the thing that often gets written about is that um, the the European Cup winning team were a team full of heart, full of bastards, basically. <laughs> you know, Kenny Burns and Larry Lloyd and all these people. And then as uh, kind of Perhaps without when he hadn't got Taylor and Gordon with him, he found it increasingly difficult to manage those difficult characters. And he built <laughs> he, he kind of built this team of essentially kind of nice young men, uh, um, you know, very clean cut Nigel and uh, you know Steve Hodge, who's you know who's, who's not <laughs> he's not going to kind of chin anyone, is he? Really, Steve Hodge? No, Gary. Gary. Uh, well, Steve Hodge, famous for getting married on a shirt, of course. Of That's course. the uh, uh, Hodge. What I liked about that Forest team was that, in in some ways, they were ahead of their time because they they played. You know, the, if the game was intended to be played in the air, God would have put grass in the sky. Is another one of Clough's. Uh, I'm misquoting him, I'm sure there, but it's something along those lines. But they were ahead of their time because they there was no passing stats then. I mean, it was. You know, the, you were lucky if you got the, the corner count at the end of a game. Nobody took much notice of metrics, but they passed the ball a lot, and they were small players who worked the triangles all round the round the field. As you say, they weren't a bunch of cloggers uh, by any means. And you know, there was Forest sides at that time. They always seemed to have ball playing centre half. So you know, Kenny Burns was a tremendous player on the on the ground, and and of course, Daz Walker was a, a ball playing centre half of one of those very few that England have produced over the last forty years or so and what's important to think about um them playing uh that that game i won't say it's a kind of precursor of uh of ticker tacker but it, it was more ticker tacker than most other uh teams were playing in england at, at that time was it, they were playing it on abominable pitches mm. and what people often forget is that the pitches that we play on now have had an enormous impact on the way the game is played now? Because you, you're playing on billiard tables, you know the ball. I always say, Im- imagine it's, what, what Nigel yeah. Clough would do now on these exactly. pitches in these formations. He would yeah. be, he'd be well, he'd, well, he was good anyway, but he'll be bloody, he'd be remarkable if he turned yeah, up now. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And you know, Gary Crosby and, and players like that, they were. You know, he, I'm not saying he would have been a, a kind of Christian Eriksen type type figure, but but he he was of, of that kind of build, and he did run over the the grass a bit like Eriksen. He had a good range of passing, but it was so hard to do on those pitches, and it was so hard to do where centre halves essentially had a license to have three three goes at you before they got a yellow card. So. Um, Forest were, I think, a little ahead of their time. And you're right, they were 
clean cut young men. But in some ways, if there was one team you would want to sort of transplant and see how they whether they could get on today, then probably those Forest sides would would hold their own the way that the Premier League is is played uh, today with the the passing game, with the ball being uh, in the triangles, with with shapes being important, with uh, with yellow cards for clogging defenders and so on. Um, it's yeah, an interesting there, thought experiment. I think it is. Yeah, there is something about because a lot of people say about did Clough fail because he wouldn't move with the times. I suppose I've never really. Think, I've literally just this has come to my head. You know, was it that they were they weren't successful because they were too far ahead of their time? Maybe. I mean, it's it's worth thinking about because of the pitches well, and and all of that. Were they were they trying to play football ten years too early? Well, it kind of. I'm not sure whether it, it's exactly that, but the way the game has evolved, as I say, with pitches, with refereeing, with the no back pass rule, with multi-ball systems keeping the ball in play a lot longer, their kind of football would survive, would adapt, I think, more readily to the way it's played today. And you've got to remember at, at that time, almost all clubs had a, a, a six foot two or six foot three uh, centre centre forwards who could uh, who could uh, knock the ball on when you threw it in the mixer, and they had you know clogging centre halves, and they had a goalkeeper who would come out and if he didn't take the ball would take your head off as well um, in playing an offside trap. And Forrest did none of those things, all of which of course don't happen anymore because the rules and as I say the, the pitches and the way tactics have evolved simply pre- preclude that kind of football from from being played. The game is better for it. But it makes you think about how those sort of all those players, the players that you mentioned there, Nick. I think probably all of them are between five foot eight and five foot ten, and they were all ball players, top of the ground players. You'd call them in rugby, I suppose. Um, and you know, they're the, they're the kind of players that we see so much of these days. Albeit all players are a little bit taller. So you know, in my mind's eye, I've got Kevin De Bruyne being five foot eight, but he's probably six foot one or something. <laughs> it's because everybody's got taller. But you know what I mean? Yeah. And of course, yeah, Stuart Pearce was signed at eighty-seven, wasn't he? Go on, next. What are you saying something? Yeah, so sorry, just going to say, it sort of first sort of flirted with that idea of having a big man up front that's on Lee Chapman and who was there for yeah. a couple of years, but that you know that that wasn't really kind of part of the part of the plan, really. Yeah, Pierce, I think I, I got that wrong. I think Pierce signed in '85, I think. All oh, right, okay. And then uh, he was he was sort of the the make weight in a deal to sign um, uh, Ian Butterworth from from Coventry. <laughs> it was one of those things where kind of you know the afterthought. Didn't Clough love an Ian? He, just, he, he did, he did love an Ian, yeah. didn't he? He must have thought it was a very yeah. strong and reliable name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ian Wone as well. It was another one of those Ian top Wone, exactly, players. yeah. Ian Bow, yeah. yeah. How did he never sign Ian Crook? Ian Crook was his kind of player. <laughs> very much his kind of player. Um, yeah, so... But not Ian Omendroid. Don't way. Too tall. Size 87 feet. <laughs> so, uh, the, um, so, yeah, so you get through to this period, as you said before... The drinking. I'm not going to say it too much, but your view, Nick, is, and I think a lot of people view, is it, it was, it's the length of it is overstated. I know Jimmy yeah. Gordon says in his quote, he says, you know, people told me to go and have a word with him. He said, but he always drank and he'd always get the job done. But I suppose by yeah. the time you get to 91, 92, that's no longer the case. Yeah, and you never, uh, you, you never, that, that Jimmy Gordon quote, you, you're never quite sure whether it is someone just kind of almost trying to protect the guy by yeah. saying, you know, he liked to drink, but he was never pissed, kind of thing. Yes. Um, but yeah, by by sort of ninety one time, his 
behavior had become started to become more and more erratic. The kind of famous thing with Forest fans, I think, is the '91 Cup final um, when it went into extra time. Obviously, Venables was out on the pitch with Tottenham players. Oh, yeah, he sat in the dugout, didn't he? Yeah. Clough just sat there, and you know, it's it, I suppose it's the sort of thing that it, it, the, the classic thing with people like Clough, and I guess kind of later on Ferguson and Mourinho. Where if that had worked, if Forrest had won, if Des Walker hadn't scored an goal, then everyone would have said, "Well, what a genius!" It's move. another but, yeah, example of his, um, yeah, mercurial genius. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the whole thing about um, the, the the kind of famous things earlier on in his career, where he'd basically get the players pissed the night before big finals to, in theory, um, uh, you know, calm them down and uh, take their mind off things. Uh, you know, if Forrest had lost those finals, then. Yes, it would have been a disgraceful example of, yes, yeah, hungover, disgrace, headlines. But yeah, the the, the drinking really kind of started to take effect around then and there were all all these kind of various stories about his behaviour. And it's really difficult, isn't it? Because you hear a lot of these stories, like Dean Saunders seems to make a living out of telling stories about a bloke who's in the middle of a full alcoholic episode, really. Yeah, I mean... Isn't this hilarious? And Some of that behaviour, you are kind of like... I suppose I can see what you on one level it's funny, but actually that's kind of deeply humiliating yeah, for a man of his age to be behaving like that because he's basically incredibly pissed all the time because he's an alcoholic. Yeah, and he, uh, I mean, firstly, the, 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 the kind of famous thing sort of story I think has been debunked and uh, turned out to be absolute bollocks. But even if it wasn't bollocks, you are what, what Saunders was doing there was making entertainment out of a very ill man. Yes. Uh, which, you know. And, but the, the, the kind of these stories about um, the Forest had a defender called Darren Wassell. Uh, I don't know if you remember him. He, he, he went uh, to Derby, he went didn't he, Darren Wassell? He, he, went, he, went, he went to Derby, uh, I think, shortly after this incident, where <laughs> it, it was a, there was a reserve game and uh, he had um, he, he hurt his hand. He thought he'd broken his hand. Uh, and he, he went to Clough and said, oh, you know, I think I've broken my hand. So Clough spat on it, rubbed it in, and said, there you go, that's better. And it was those those kind of stories. The other, you know, the story about him punching Roy Keane in the stomach um, in the dressing room once. They're the kind of things that where where you can see how the the the, the drink really kind of took hold. And there's horrible some horrible clips on YouTube of him like on TV, really quite plainly drunk, like yeah, and the, the, even even as something as simple as there was, there was a. Remember, he did those series of shredded wheat adverts. There was a story about him. Um, they had to stop filming one of those because he just said, oh, sorry, I can't do this in Sozom. <laughs> so, you know. Gary? Yeah, it, it, there's a couple of things that kind of run alongside that. I mean, he, he's obviously not the the first person to have problems with drink, nor is he the, the first person with a, uh, a glorious past that slides into something of an ignominious uh, end. But the, the, the two things that are in play, I think, is that they start to believe their own publicity. They're, they're told so often that they're that they're a one-off, that they're, you know, they they have uh, these almost magical powers. That, and you see it again in all walks of life when people start to believe their own publicity. Then that's the time they're in trouble. And running alongside that, you have this complete lack of checks and balances where one person becomes so much more powerful than anybody else that that even criticism or or 
structures that are meant to rein in their power with boardrooms and reporting to and reviews and evaluations and performance reports. None of those matter because the personality is so big and the history is so um, storied that they that they can't be challenged. And I think both of those things were in play. And the difference was that it was it was played out in these very public arenas, as you say, those interviews, which you know one hopes wouldn't happen today, but you kind of think that they they might do but it wouldn't be on primetime bbc it would be on you know some some satellite program outside a a bar or something these days but then you know 20 million people were watching those those uh, interviews where he's quite plainly not in control and it's it's sad to see and you know it's easy to say somebody should have intervened but who was going to do it who was going to stand up to brian clough and plus if he was in the, if he was if he was alcoholic, he he wouldn't have listened until he was ready to listen anyway. Quite no, honestly. he wouldn't have. So. He, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have listened, but he wouldn't have listened somewhere where he wasn't exposed to television lights. Yeah, the camera. perhaps. Yeah, that's the difference. Um, you mentioned very briefly there, Nick, in passing Roy Keane. I think it's only worth we have to. We can't really not mention Roy Keane. He signed Roy Keane from Cove Rangers for was it forty-seven grand or something like that at the time. And it's funny with Roy Keane because obviously you mentioned he got punched by Clough, but he, um, does, Keane tells a story in his biography about how he really struggled in his first few years at Nottingham with not being near his family and needed time. And he'd go and ask Clough if he could go home for periods. And Clough was always very generous in saying yes, of course, and, and saw that it was quite important that to do that. Again, it's this, I think maybe because of maybe his family, Clough's family were always very important to him, weren't they, I suppose? Maybe. He saw some of that. But yeah, uh, Keane's always very keen to point that out. You mentioned that point before, Gary, as well, about good habits. There's a a quote from Keane where he says, he basically told me that you get the ball and give it to somebody else in a red shirt. He said, and that's what I did my entire career. I never forgot it. I gave it some, I just passed a move. That's what I did, because that's what Clough told me I should do. Nick? Yeah, Keane's a really interesting one, because he was probably the last, uh, obviously... Clough for her had kind of um, descended to this to the point that we were discussing before in the latter years of his career. But Keane was kind of the laugh. There were, there were always flashes of the old Clough there, and Keane was probably the last example of that because you know he, he was this player that he picks from nowhere, and as you said, he was um, the, one of the last players that he handled perfectly, really. Um, you know, the, the the old thing in the, the, the glory days was that he knew exactly which players craved praise and which, which players needed a kind of, you know, a, a friendly arm around the shoulder. And he knew, knew which players he had to kind of try he'd, and... He'd famously probably... always give praise to Kenny Burns and never any to Larry Lloyd, wouldn't he? That's one of, yeah. that's one of the great yeah, yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, Larry Lloyd he, was knew... desperate to get, like, some praise off him. And, of course, that just motivated Larry Lloyd even more. Yeah. So it was perfect, because you know? he... He knew exactly how to handle Larry Lloyd for for, for a spell, anyway, <laughs> and he knew exactly how to to handle Roy Keane. Um, you know, he'd kind of he'd tolerate his Keane's various excesses in the nightclubs of Nottingham, and there was a just there's a story. I think there's a story about Roy Keane starting a fight in a golf club somewhere on a pre-season <laughs> tour. Um, Do you know I what? Know I'd, li- you know, I'd nothing I'd like to see more than Roy Keane having a fight in a golf club. That <laughs> seems like a brilliant bit of theatre. I'd want to see. 
this weird story about him. Someone, some, someone, a woman approached him asking if he could donate a pair of his underpants to some quite weird-sounding celebrity auction they were doing. <laughs> and he, he said, I'd rather not. I'll give you a signed shirt. And then one thing led to another, and it, 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 it basically ended with him and this woman's boyfriend kicking the shit out of each other <laughs> on the floor of this bar. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know you shouldn't laugh at such things, but they're, they're funny, so we can't stop they doing are funny, it. Yeah. yeah, so Kit, yeah, and trusted and again, he, trusted Keen quite early, didn't he? In the midst of all this, this oh, haze, yeah, absolutely. Know. I mean, even the, the kind of the the story about Keen's debut, he uh, he just signed. No one really knew who. None of the players knew who this kind of skinny kid who with a, an accent that no one could really understand was they took him to um an away game at liverpool and um king had gone out and got quite pissed the previous night so he was they they picked him up and he was he was hung over um they took him to the ground he came for just as a kind of you know just for experience just go along for the ride and then when in the dressing room uh club said um let me try that. Try that shirt on there. Try the number seven shirt on. So Keane did as he's told and put the shirt on. And Club said, "Well, you look great in that. I'll tell you what, you're playing." And <laughs> he just kind of threw him in. And none of the other players knew who this guy was. Um, and they had to kind of someone had to give him a quick sort of pet talk about you know what uh, what where he should be playing basically. Um, but it was just to kind of. He, he he obviously trusted this guy from the very very start, and then right through to the to the end where uh, when Kane in the season that Forest got relegated was one of the best players in the league, and he was Forest's best player in about three or four different positions. Um, played all over the place, played some defence, played like wing, played in centre mid, um, and that was kind of partly because Clough had nothing else, but partly because he trusted <laughs> Gary. Yeah, you know, just for a, a manager who didn't like his players to answer back, he had remarkable success with Scots and Irishmen with impenetrable <laughs> accents. So maybe that had something to do with it because when they did answer back, nobody understood what they were saying. <laughs> so then you get into sort of, I suppose, the, the 1993 season, which again, you, it went from hovering around an eighth right to 22nd, only 10 games won in 92-93. The, um, the team by this stage, I suppose... The kind of aggregate starting eleven at this stage would have been Mark Crossley in goal, Brian Laws, yes. Brian Laws, Steve, Steve Chettle, Kyle Tyler. Was, uh, yeah, well, they, they, Des Walker had been sold uh, to Sampdoria. Yeah. Sampdoria yeah, yeah. So Kyle Tyler's in. Was that? Uh, I mean, was it as simple as just Des Walker had gone and then it just really went bad? Was it? Is that too simple? Um, it's not. It's probably a little bit too simple, but it's not. It's not far off. I mean, it was a kind of um, just a symbol of he, he didn't know who to replace him with. I mean, who do you replace? Dead Walker. Well, quite. But, yeah, yeah. But um, perhaps not Carl Tyler. No, maybe not. Maybe not Carl <laughs> Tyler. And, and Nike. The, the, to the to kind of illustrate the desperation, Nigel Clough played yeah. in central defence a fair bit that season, which was you know. Uh, and you know Stuart yeah. Pearce was in. Stuart Pearce was injured for a lot of the time. Uh, Teddy Sheringham obviously started the season at Forest and then was sold and wasn't really yeah. replaced. Um, and and again, Gary Bannister's not really a replacement, is he for Teddy didn't, Sheringham? Didn't really uh, didn't really get you excited, Gary Bannister. <laughs> and then kind of 
the, 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 this this was the kind of the, the, the other famous story is that this was another illustration of of how far that the, the club, you know, how far he had fallen. That um, towards the end of the season, they had a deal lined up to sign Stan Collymore, um, and Club basically just did it. He just he, he, he said he. I think the quote, I think it was from Duncan Hamilton's book, where he said, uh, I just don't know. I used to know, but I just don't know anymore. He just didn't, he, he had no certainty about, you know, who, who was a good player and who wasn't in the most kind of simple way. So who did that. he think was a better player than Stan Collymore, Nick? Robert Rosario. <laughs> uh, he signed, <laughs> he signed uh, yeah, there was a, there was a um, it, it all got quite ugly at the end and the, the, there were various kind of meetings of, Boards and shareholders, uh, not, not shareholders, but uh, supporters groups and so on. And at one of these groups, um, one of these meetings, someone said, "We just can't understand why you haven't signed a striker, Brian." And he said, "I have signed a striker. Ha ha ha! You have to wait till tomorrow to see who it is." And then big Bob Rosario turned up. Oh, amazing! So this is when and Roy Keane's still there. Kingsley Blackie and Wone, Gary Crosby, Scott Gemmell coming through. At this point, wasn't he? Yes, Gamble had been in the team for a couple of years at that yeah, point. I think. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of there was a lot of noise made during that season. The whole too good to go down, like United in seventy five, whatever it was, seventy four, seventy five. Um, but I suppose when you look at that team, is it too good to go down? Obviously, it went down, but you know what I mean. Is it is is that an aberration given the talent? Uh, Genuine question. So. I don't know. It's not a loaded question. I'm uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to work it no, through in mind as I'm saying it. Uh, a lot of the, there were kind of some talented players there, but it, it was a combination of players on their way down and a few on their way up who didn't quite weren't quite sort of there just yet. Like Steve Stone, I think, got in the team at the end, right. kind of the end of that season. Pierce was injured for a lot of it. The players that replaced the big players, like you know, Carl Tyler and Gary Bannister, weren't good enough. Um, and it was all just kind of led by a guy who wasn't really there as well. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a there was a lack of leadership on and off the field. I think. I mean, off the field we all know, but on the field, there's nobody really in that team to put a foot in. There's nobody really to to take all these ball players and really knit them together. And it was a, it was at a time when when clubs were still shoving it in the mixer, and uh, and you could bully players physically, bully players. Um, you know, there were there were teams with two six footers in central midfield, and and I think they just got pushed off the ball, uh, both in the lit- in the metaphorical sense and the literal sense. And that that team are, I would suggest, too good to go down in terms of talent. But you look at the balance of the side, and you know, it, it just it just cries out for for someone to to grab hold of it in central midfield and someone to score some cheap goals up front because they didn't get many cheap goals and they were too easy to play around and through. And so down they went. Um, Clough, well, what happened next? Clough went into retirement, didn't he? Um, and and to whatever form of rehab eventually worked for him. I never knew quite what. Did he just, did he just take himself back to his house near Derby and sobered up? Or did he ever go to a treatment centre or anything? I, never, I don't know. Pretty much, it's... it's everyone's kind of very quiet about how, about what what exactly happened in those kind of uh, those years after he I, I don't think he kind of stepped out the city ground and dried out but he um, he had a couple of operations and mm. sort of 
hung around. He still he still, he still kind of pops up in the media every now and then. I remember him coming um, out and saying that he, how he thought that Pierre von Hoydonk was insane when yeah. all that when all that was when all that was going on. I remember him appearing then, looking very very yeah, frail. He, yeah, he never really. Um, I don't think he very often came back to the city ground, but partly because of the circumstances around you know his uh, him leaving the club. Basically, he was. It's a very, very long story, but he was kind of essentially forced out by um, by a direct one of the directors and the the chairman at the time, who you know perfectly that they were really doing their job because they they realised that he didn't you know he he he, he was he, he didn't have any more. Um, and then, I mean, the, so the sorry. word was that he spent spent time and he was happier at Trent Bridge because at Trent Bridge yeah. he was just a, a bloke in the crowd and although people would obviously recognise him cricket fans being cricket fans nobody took a blind bit of notice so he could just sit there and watch the cricket and um, he's not the only managerial great who found it difficult to adjust to life uh, after leaving the clubs with which they were associated you know one thinks of of um, Bill Shankly going to um, going to Everton's training ground rather than Liverpool's uh, um, and uh, you know I, I think it, it, it is it is very difficult um, but one hopes that he found some kind of of peace and some kind of uh, of way of expressing himself because I'm sure that the the boiling ego was still there; it just needed to be directed in different uh, places. He did. I mean, you said Trent Bridge. He was also when Nigel uh, started managing Burton Albion in the kind of late nineties. He was he, he went there a lot, and he, I think he was very yeah. happy to go yeah. there. Um, but yeah, not didn't as I recall anyway. Didn't really see him a lot of times. You know that the uh, the roads. I'm sure you know Nick, but it's it's nice. Uh, you know, I've I've ridden the motorbike down it a number of times, and it it lifts my heart a little bit. The road that runs between Derby and Nottingham is called Brian Clough Way. Yeah. Is that yeah. the A52, is it? Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah and of course there's the Brian Clough stand. And I suppose it's a question, actually, because often when you talk to people, they'll say, oh, had he been anybody else at any other club, he'd have been sacked before, you know, the relegation. But then when you look at it, the fact that Cups kept coming in, you're finishing in eighth, you're finishing in 18th. There was nothing. Yeah, in, I mean, there was nothing in the perform in the in the fin, the results that suggested he was an automatic sacking. I suppose the boozing maybe might have seen him go if he was another man at another club. Maybe do you think? Uh, possibly, but yeah, but finished eight, eight or whatever it was in the in ninety one. Had a cup every got year, to, pretty much. Yeah, got, got to the league cup, beaten by United in the league cup final ninety two. So there was kind of in, in terms of results, there was no real reason to sack him. But we, we do have a precedent these days, though, Lee, in the East Midlands when Leicester offloaded Ranieri so soon after the title win. It's so, a different world I, now, though, isn't it? I mean, people it, just it is, offloaded it is, all the time now. But. Well, well, I was, I was going to make that point. It is a different world now. So I think perhaps now when that slide was on and was clearly a slide that was not going to be arrested by the man whose job it was to manage and direct the team. I think he, he probably would have been moved out. Um, but then there was no way, there was no way he was going to get to sacked mid mid season. Not then. No. So I think one, go on, Nick. sorry, just one thing I think we've, um, we kind of skipped over that. I think we really should mention is the, uh, the couple of times he, um, Cuffed some fans around the head when they tried <laughs> yeah. to 
uh, to uh, invade the pitch. One, there was, it happened a couple of times. The famous one inspired the possibly apocryphal headline, The Shit Hits the Fan. Um, <laughs> yeah. and that, uh, a lot of people said he then, cleared them quicker than the police horses, didn't he? When he flew oh, on and yeah, clipped a couple of people, they soon dispersed, you know. But there's, there was another one, and there's a sensational picture or a bit of, bit of footage around somewhere. This guy who tried to invade the pitch, I can't remember if he was, he, he, I think he was dressed as a clown. And he was wearing one of those kind of those bald wigs, you know, those kind of Max yeah. Wall bald wigs. And he tried to go on the pitch, and there's this footage of Clough booting him off, off the pitch, which uh, you know, obviously, so we would never get never get away with now. <laughs> yeah. But the, the lads, the lads who um, uh, who invaded the pitch after a League Cup game against QPR, he uh, made them apologise on TV rather than. Yeah, I remember them being like grovelly saying that their parents had gone mad with them and stuff. They were like yeah. really ashamed of, of, you know, presenting themselves as very ashamed, Gary. Well, I I actually taught at the college in which they were later students, and they were a couple of quiet lads, but they were the <laughs> they were the lads who who cuffed wow. uh, that night and then and then did the uh, the apology. Um, for a man with a bad knee and a drink problem, he was quick over the ground. <laughs> Land those punches. I suppose, yeah. You, you don't lose your... You can't coach pace, can you? And he always had it, so... <laughs> right, I suppose the last thing to say is obviously Forrest went down, uh, Frank Clark was appointed, and and they came up at the first yeah. try, didn't okay. they? Came up in came second, first... I think, was it? Yeah, it came up, yeah, finished second behind... Uh... I don't know if it wasn't Palace. anyway. Palace. Palace. Yeah. There you go. Um, I think Leeds get up, got up in the playoffs that year. Right. Um, and yeah, finished third that team with uh, with Collymore and Steve Stone and uh, Pierce. Pierce stuck around. Uh, Con Cooper was was signed then. Um, it was it was a kind of it was incredible. Retrospectively, it was an incredible punt to um, to have Frank Clark come in as a manager because he was. Like managing director at Leighton Orient or something was the only his only previous experience, and it was because you know he was brought in because he was um, you know obviously a member of the European yes. Cup team, and yes. then they got you know, got promoted and then uh, finished third in the Premier League the the following year. It was Leicester that went up that year, not Leeds. Sorry, right to, yeah. before before I get any mail, correct <laughs> myself. It is it was Leicester, and of course they did end up back in Europe, didn't they? Later on in the nineties, yeah. I can remember I was at uni in Middlesbrough and we played rugby against Nottingham Trent University, and we were out that night there because we stayed over that night I think, and there was we went into some kebab shop and there was a load of Forest fans in there, in I think it would have been the, the Labatt's period, you know the Labatt's shirt sure. period, yeah. um, and they were all they were all skinheads and I thought, and we kind of walked in and we were kind of rugby players I thought this they looked as if who do you think you are. And thankfully, they just turned back to the kebabs and carried on singing one team in Europe, there's only one team in Europe. So I think, weren't they the last team left? Yeah, One year in the 90s, there was only them yeah. left in Europe. Yeah, it was, it was in 90, it was 95, 96. Um, I think, was that the year that, would that have been the year that, um, that Blackburn were in the Champions League and uh, batting the stove? Oh yeah, uh, had a fight the between themselves. Uh, they, yeah. yeah, they got knocked out quite early and Forrest got to the quarterfinals, I think, of the UEFA Cup. Yeah. Got absolutely gobbed by Bayern Munich in the end. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but one team in Europe, as, as, as yeah. I can testify, yeah, yeah. 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 That probably brings us to the end. Thank you very, very much, Nick, for your time and your inside knowledge on that. That was really good stuff. Thank you, Gary, as ever. 
we will be pleasure we will be back after christmas when i have no idea what we're talking about and as listeners will know we can't even guarantee we'll be back at any time after christmas because we tend to have to do this by the seat of our pants but thank you very much for your patience thank you so much for everyone to everyone that listens to us have a lovely christmas if you listen to this prior if not i hope you did have one take care everybody and goodbye Podcast Network.